Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we're going to be talking to my friend Khalid. He's going to be telling us about some of his work in Germany. He is of uh, German-Syrian background, and he does some uh, work there as a political educator, and he'll, he'll tell us a little bit about that. And then we're going to be talking about the uh, the treatment of the history of the Holocaust in Germany and in Israel and the way that that affects the politics and the cultures in those two countries. Uh, yeah, so how are you doing, Khalid? Uh, thank you, Tom, for introducing me and thank you for having me on this podcast. It's my, my first participation in the podcast. I'm fine. It's uh, five 5.36 in the morning here right now. One and a half hours after my uh, suhoor, after I started fasting again, uh, I'm I'm do- I'm doing great. Yeah, th- thanks thanks again for uh, coming on at this crazy hour and with the fasting and everything. You know, we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself so that uh, you know people understand where you're coming from? Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, I'm Khaled. I'm from a, as you said, from a German-Syrian background. And I, since I have been a small child, I've always been fascinated by history more than anything anything else. History has fascinated me. So uh, after I finished the Abitur, which is the high school, I started uh, studying history and I did a master's degree in history, which I finished last year with a master's thesis about um anti-Semitism or rather broadly the relationship between a certain set of German uh, right-wing extremist intellectuals. They're called the Neue Rechte or Nouvelle Droit, which they would be more famously on worldwide, which because of the, the name comes from France. Um, and their relationship to Jewish people and the state of Israel, because it's very complicated. Um, most of them hate Jews in Israel, but some of them also envy it. So, well, but hmm. um, and I also uh, now now I have uh, since since I finished my master's degree, I've actually started a second instead of starting my dissertation as I had originally planned, because I uh, I want to be a, a family father in the future, midterm future. And I thought um, you need a secure job opportunity. So now I'm doing a th- second master's theory in pedagogy. So I could be a, a high school teacher afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then I want to do a dissertation. Um, and since 2018, I have worked both as a lecturer, which means that I give trainings or lectures for for headmasters, for pedagogues, for teachers or for youth offices um, of German cities. But I have also given my lectures and I have also worked in schools itself, where I also do trainings for teachers, but where I also do political education for the pupils itself. Mostly um, my political education focuses around the topics of Islam. For example, one of my my lectures, my workshops is called um, Salafism as a youth culture and Islam as a religion of young people. How do pedagogues distinguish them both? Hmm. Of course, my main message will be you can't distinguish it properly if you're not a Muslim yourself. So just just better be quiet. Yeah, just, just don't <laughs> don't be hysterical when it comes yeah. to those topics. Just just try to be tolerant. So I use those t- names 
for my lectures, which sound um, sound very like as if they're concerned for security and for the orderliness of society, free from any radical influences. But in the end, I will tell, tell those people mostly to be tolerant and to and, and to to get to know Muslims and Islam mm. and right wing extremism, which I also talk a lot about. And when talking to pupils, of course, it's different. I will talk about anything that comes to their mind and their life issues and how politics impacts their lives at most. Cool. That must be uh, an interesting experience. Uh, so I think you mentioned before we started recording that you have done a lot of that kind of work in the uh, like the eastern part of Germany, like the ex-GDR areas. Yes, that, that is true. And actually, I have um, I, I I could describe myself politically as a as, as quite a quite a quite a liberal, and um, you might even I, I I even sometimes I call myself like a blue pilled liberal in that I have the idea that a liberal society can have social harmony and that a, a, a liberal society um can 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 strive to to uplift people who have not profited so much and especially I have always believed in the ability or even in the um, ex in, in the in the existing condition of German society to be tolerant because personally I have not had so many problems with racism in my life and when I had them I found ways to rationalize it to make it go away although I have had quite a few uh, bad racist experiences from my own life, mostly with the police. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But since I have been worked in those schools in the former Eastern Eastern Germany, the former GDR, I have become a bit more black-pilled and I have seen things in the Eastern part of Germany which I I could have never imagined. If you, if you like, I can go on about, a bit about it. Yeah, please do. Okay, so the thing is, First, I need to go, go a bit more into details about what I do. What I do, I have I work with colleagues. Most of my colleagues, I mean, I'm I'm the only only practicing Muslim right now with my the, the colleagues that I work in schools with. In my work in for for on conferences or for for trainings or for offices that's freelance. But my work in schools is for a, a certain initiative. And it, of course, it gets it gets paid, but it's called an initiative. Um, and most of my colleagues are from the eastern part of Germany, but because they were leftists, they ran away and went to Berlin, because that's what everybody does who is living in the eastern German province and doesn't want to live there. He goes to she he or she goes to Berlin, and um, we go to schools, and most of them are problematic schools. So we're not going to the good schools; we're going to the bad schools, to the schools that are in socially socially weak areas, the schools that have problems with uh, extremism, with right-wing extremism, or who have um, a hard time integrating uh, refugees. Because the eastern part of Germany um, has not experienced the mass migration that the western part of Germany has experienced since the 60s, or rather smaller mass immigration, much smaller, which means that in many parts of eastern Germany, Up until 2015, there were not many non-white or generally foreign people, with the exception 
of the so-called Russlanddeutsche, the Russian Germans, which are Russians, Soviet Russians of German heritage, were um, by virtue of their German ancestry allowed hmm. to uh, to become Germans after the Soviet Union uh, broke down. Um, and, and Vietnamese people, but not so many of them, especially compared to the West. And also Eastern Germany has always been, I think many people will already know that, much more right-wing than the Western part of Germany. And also economically much more depraved because the reunification of Germany in 1990, um, the German government at that time had, a, had to make very hard decisions and uh, that led to a very bad sp downward spiral of the Eastern German industry, which means that Eastern Germany up to today has a lot more unemployment and a lot lower wages even when you work. So now comes the point. In 2015, this changed because the uh, refugees that came um, in this year, which were over a million, um, then were distributed all over Germany by the idea of uh, not allowing them to build clusters to force them to integrate into German societies and, and to, to share the burden among the German uh, municipalities alike, which means that every even the smallest Eastern German villages, which are also, by the way, I should note, uh, strongly ravaged by um, immigration to the West. Yeah, The um, Eastern German rural regions, especially, which are uh, ravaged by immigration uh, to the West and which hardly have children anymore, only old people, have received a lot of refugees mm -hmm. since that time. And this had led, has led to all kinds of social problems because they are hardly accepted there. Yeah, I can imagine. That's very difficult for everybody. Okay, but now to come to the point, I go to those schools, problematic schools, and I experience racism from the uh, leadership of the school, from teachers especially, especially, from pupils, which goes in has proportions I could not have imagined before. For example, uh, I'm used to going to schools and then have teachers start screaming that all Syrians must be kicked out. Wow. And when you ask them what he's meaning by that, he says, but I wanted to be nice to you. I wanted to give you a very good recommendation. If you want to have a nice stay at our school, kick every Syrian out. That, and then you won't have any problem. Wow. Um, I, have, I have seen signs of social decay, which is also something sadly typical for Eastern Germany. Uh, for example, I have seen um, schools where pedophiles had been roaming around the school and trying to uh, to net, that's what the pupils called, like to net, like to put in their fisher net, you know, yeah. to net in pupils and take to their to their place to, to rape them. And uh, the pupils had made a joke out of it, but the social decay was... Um, so advanced that the teachers didn't notice for three weeks what was happening, while the, every single pupil in the school had already made 15 jokes about it. Wow. I have seen teachers sexually harass young girls from obviously from uh, disintegrated social backgrounds and uh, act as if that was normal, as if that was like an, uh, an equal sexual encounter. Yeah, a 55-year-old teacher and a 13-year-old girl living in a foster family. And most of all, I have seen 
racism and this means racism both from 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 pupils who uh, say that their favorite pastime is to uh, get into batteries with refugees and that those refugees need to be kicked out of Germany again which is even the most harmless form so the most harmless forms of racism I have seen have always come from pupils actually um, because they were de treating it as it, it more like some kind of a, a schoolyard polarization or like yeah they have they have their group we have my group we beat each other uh, up while I have seen teachers um, systematically uh, discriminating against against uh, refugee children for example when they were when they're wearing hijab making comments like uh, yeah uh, we need to throw all the criminal refugees out of airplanes into the northern sea Bilal, did you listen to me? You are a criminal refugee. What do you say about my idea? Wow. wow. So that, that's one thing a t teacher teacher has uh, said and which was um, was witnessed by, several, by by the whole class, basically. Um, I have... Uh, oh, I can, can tell just one especially funny little anecdote. In one school, it was in a place, I won't name the place, but the place had, uh, <laughs> had the darkness in its name already. It's, it's a small town in eastern Germany which uh, with a very funny sounding name which involves the word darkness which um, fits very well where um, the um, refugee children on the schoolyard told me stories I will never forget the one 16 year old told me that just last week he went through the city by foot and suddenly an, uh, a truck like a big truck like a, like a haul truck stopped beside of him And the driver went out and was like a middle-aged man with a big pot belly. And he had a baseball bat in his hand and he started chasing him without even saying a word. He just started chasing him. Um, at the uh, same school, a Syrian girl who was very, very sweet. And uh, I, have to, I have to, again, to reiterate that life is hard even for the uh, white Germans in this, this part. For example, when my, my colleagues did like a kind of, they collected papers where, every, like, this is what you do in this kind of political education with ninth grade. Everybody was to, to write on a piece of paper how they see them, themselves in 10 years, which is used to, to measure their social perspective. Yeah, what, what do they even perceive will be their future? And uh, almost all German pupils wrote down that in 10 years, I see myself with a job and without alcoholism. Or without a drug addiction, which of course is a very bleak picture of their own future. The Syrian girl was the only one who wrote something else. She wrote, I want to live in a world where there exists no discrimination between races or between men and women, and I want to be a nurse or a doctor. And she told me that the teachers at her school allowed her classmates to beat her up if she spoke Arabic with her sister. Her little sister was a lot younger and um, they were both very alone and when they speak Arabic they have they can be beat up by other pupils and the teachers gave it an okay. Wow, it's rough. I understand what you mean by this black pill. <laughs> yeah. At the same school also happened uh, the second strongest, but only the second strongest, uh, second worst story I, I witnessed. It was a, a, a black pupil. He was from Yemen, but he was he, he was not looking like a dark Arab. He was just African looking. 
and he told me a story and also um, during while he told the story I noticed that two of his friends one was a white German his name was Marcel I think which is a very German name and the other one was an African they were constantly picking at his hair you know they were touching his afro he mm-hmm. was saying an African and they were touching it all the time but he was not even he was he was ignoring it and that, at that time I, I, I thought the poor guy they're doing this black hair stuff to him all the time and he's 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 so used to it he's not even reacting anymore but then i came to understand it a bit better later he told me um a story uh how okay so next to the school there's a supermarket the supermarket opens 15 minutes before the school starts which means that the alcoholics of the area will buy their first beer 15 minutes before the school starts by the time school starts The first bottle is empty. What do they do with the bottle? They throw it in the direction of pupils with black hair, and especially those with black skin. One time, the bottle was not thrown, but it was smashed over his head. And the 15-year-old boy came to the school with a a big wound on the side of his head, which needed to be um, sued with, I think, 14 stitches or 15. Whoa. And, of course, the teacher called um, the ambulance, but she didn't call the police. And when then he asked her if in the future he could take a side entrance to the school so he could avoid those alcoholics, she said, we don't do special stuff for people like you. Wow. Yeah. So he had to continue using the main entrance. Yeah. And... um, then I later I, I when he talked went on talking I also understood um, why he wasn't bothered by his uh, friends picking at his hair because he uh, told another story how Nazis attacked him in the streets just just for fun and he called in uh, reinforcements and the reinforcements consisted of uh, four people two Afghans uh, from his family and those two boys who were standing next to him and then I thought okay. So um, having your your hair uh, touched in this uh, unnerving manner is uh, is a kind of a is a kind of a microaggression. But I think if your daily perspective is like a common battle against neo Nazis, then this microaggression is not even perceived anymore. You know. Yeah. yeah. So when 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 you have those t- two people with you who um, <laughs> who get into violent batteries with neo-nazis uh, with you then you you probably have a different perception of of, of mutual respect right and that was my interpretation of it yeah that's pretty crazy i didn't realize i mean i always knew that it was more there was more like right-wing sort of leaning stuff going on in eastern germany these days but i didn't realize it was like that i mean uh, these must be like some of the worst parts of the country yeah, definitely, definitely. For example, the school where this stuff with the pedophile happened and where also the teacher screamed that we should kick out the Syrians, um, that school can surely be described as one of the worst in Germany probably because it's in a city, not a small village, but a city, but it's the poorest city in Germany. Hmm. And this one is uh, the worst school in the city. So you see? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So... Probably, I mean, probably this is the worst of the worst, and this is not the normalcy, not even the East, I think. But it, it is, uh, those are conditions which I had not thought I would see. And I can even, I can even uh, 
put one one on top. So far, I have talked about mostly about um, casual racism and about um, what you say and negligence towards what's happening. But in one school in a large town, I even ex- uh, experienced systematic apartheid, and that really put the cherry on top of it. And th- this was just th- this year; it was in January. It was a large town, and the fourth uh, largest town in the former Eastern Germany, after uh, Berlin, Dresden, and Leipzig. Its name is Chemnitz. It has a quarter million in- inhabitants. And it's known to be a town with a large problem with racism and Nazism. Just last year, after a, a refugee killed um, a German during during some festival in an argument, apparently because the German, who was, by the way, a, a, a black man, he was a, a half-Cuban German, um, and he had tried, apparently, to defend women, from sexual harassment by those refugees and then one of the refugees uh, just stabbed him and he died and the next day neo-nazis uh, marauded through the city and attacked um attacked men people with black hair even the father of a uh, of a person very close to me or very close to my sister very close uh, to my sister was um was um saw those uh, mob and had to had to flee from from the mob and they also attacked an Israeli restaurant with stones and uh, and iron stuff they picked from the street. Uh, and after this happened, this one particular school I talked about um, was forced by parents to enact a system of apartheid. And um, we only noticed it when we got there. So we were not invited by the... Um, by the leadership of the school, as we usually do, because the school leadership, the headmasters, the principals want to see what's going on at their school and they perceive it as a problem. So in every case I have mentioned so far, there was the conscious consciousness uh, in the um, leadership of the school that there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Even, if, even if they themselves were rather conservative and had different ideas, for example, sometimes went to schools because the principals thought, well, the refugees, they're the problem. They don't integrate. We need to, to put in more pedagogic effort to um, make those refugees integrate. So now we're calling upon those pedagogues. And they come to us and they shall, shall do something with the refugees. But we also have had um, headmasters who were, uh, of course, knowing that they had a big problem with racism among uh, their teachers and among the pupils in, in the city. But at this school, um, the leadership of the school itself had instituted racism, which is that they had made up classes for non-whites, non-white classes. Wow. So these classes were created in violation of all kinds of laws and rules. Because, for example, they had the school and... Um, they they didn't have enough non-white people to make one non-white class in every um, every grade, so instead they made just one non-white class every second grade in every second grade, and just uh, pulled the people from their grades and into this class. So someone who was in tenth grade was pulled to the ninth, and someone who was in eighth was pulled up to ninth too. You see what I mean? Oh uh, yeah, wow. Yeah, and um, this, those classes uh, combined all refugees 
regardless of their ability and regardless of their grades, I mean, like their their success. Mm-hmm. All people who were recent Im- Im- immigrants in this in one of the classes was even the daughter of a Russian engineer, and she was like still shell shocked what she was doing in this kind of class because she was like a very uh, studious studious uh, young young woman who was uh, not used to being put together with a rabble, you know. And which makes it even more funny, also all non-white autochthonous people from the city. So you had um, people who, in, who were, uh, for example, one boy, he was, he was black. His father was from Africa. Uh, but he was speaking in the strongest Saxonian dialect you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But he was in that class because he wasn't white. With 90% people who were not even speaking German as their mother language and were not learning it because they were denied any, uh, which they have a right to, they were denied uh, special language classes and they were denied contact to the German pupils, so they would have no one who would even teach them, and they would have no way to learn it. Um, and that was really the craziest thing. I still remember the teacher talking to me and um, the the head teacher of the class and saying, telling me, for thirty years, I've been a respected woman in 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 my, among my colleagues for thirty years, but since I have taken upon this class. And since I have seen this class as a project and since I have accepted those children as my children under my protection as a teacher, my colleagues have only called me the refugee woman, the woman, the refugee woman. And I have, I'm not respected anymore. And that was something very, uh, very, very bleak experience. Because this woman was wonderful. Her her uh, her pupils were giving her a hug every morning, and I could see it was not forced, you know. Right. Yeah. Like like fifteen year old uh, Syrian Syrian boy who was like like in <laughs> was in was under under the highest pressure trying to become like a real man, you know, mm-hmm. in this yeah. age, and he was hugging his teacher because <laughs> because they all um, thought so highly of her and her efforts to teach them and to protect them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's 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 what I experienced. That's pretty crazy. Uh, what do you think like what what's the trajectory of this sort of thing? Is this getting worse or is it kind of do you see this just sort of staying at this level for a while or, or what do you think? Mm, Maybe getting better, it's, hopefully. It's definitely getting worse, but I think that is I'm still I'm still a bit I'm still blue-pilled enough to say I think it's it will get better. It's getting worse now. But I think this might have to do with a lot of polarization after what happened um, in the last 10 years in Germany with the uh, continuous advancement of the so-called European project. Um, for example, in 2010, when the financial crisis, many people thought that German money was uh, spent to help other European states, which a lot of right-wingers really objected to. And of course, 2015, when over a million young people, um, mostly young people, not all of course, came to Germany as uh, refugees, which indeed created all kinds of real problems, because obviously when something like that happens, problems will will appear. And it is is also true that um, things have happened in Germany after uh, 2015 that had not happened before in a very long time. For example, I don't know if you have heard of it, the... uh, 
mass sexual assault, mostly by refugees, not even Syrian refugees, but people from Morocco and Algeria and, and Tunisia were not even recognized as real refugees in Germany. They just came like um, they like hobos on a train. You see what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I have um, heard of that. As yeah, as freeloaders, they came as a kind of as a kind of a freeloader of of the of the um, welcoming of the refugees by the mainstream of the German society. And um, they, they, there were a few few incidents like this, and uh, it has allowed the racist and nationalist part of Germany to rear their head. But as I said, I think it's also a question of polarization, because Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, has also um, led her party, which is traditionally a conservative party, very far to the left. I mean, not to the real left, but much more to the left than before so mm-hmm. a lot of um, so a lot of right wing energy that has been set free now also comes from the fact that her party uh, had no place anymore for those right wing populists yeah mm-hmm. so that's not a sign of the weakening of liberalism in germany but more a sign of more polarization against the right wing because um a rather liberal policy, especially when it comes to um, to people of foreign backgrounds, has controlled ge- the German politics for quite some time. And do not say that everything is perfect. Islamophobia is a great problem. Also, governmental institutions is in, in, in Germany. Racism is a big problem. And not nearly enough is, is done. But it speaks for itself that even very woke and post-colonially educated um, Uh, edgy Twitter journalists in Germany usually have a sympathy for Angela Merkel, you know. So, so the the German equivalent of let me let me look for a person most people know. Yeah, you know uh, Zaira Rao on Twitter. Uh, I don't. Yeah, so like no. a, like in like in like an edgy anti-white person, um, anti-white oh, person. Oh person. oh oh the from a very she's yeah, Indian, rich, right? The Indian rich the rich the 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 rich Indian girl who now yeah. earns okay. money by telling yeah. middle class white women they're evil, right? Sure. Yeah. Even like this equivalent in Germany, they still like um like Angela Merkel. So that that tells you something. Or mm-hmm. well, they have some sympathy for her. Sure. Do you think that there's a chance that something like Alternative for Germany or some sort of, uh, you know, broad uh, to the right of the Christian Democrats, like, you know, the more far-right parties, um, actually coming into power at any point in time or leading a coalition? Or do you think that uh, it's more that these uh, anti-immigrant sentiments just kind of bubble up on the right that's this gap because of, uh, you know, the more centrist move by Merkel and things like that? Well, that's a very difficult question. And until recently, I have been also very optimistic when it comes to that, um, because every single political measure says that at least seventy-five, between seventy-five and eighty-five percent of the German population say they would never, under any circumstance, support the AfD, the Alternative for Germany. Mm-hmm. But there are, which is a lot. But of course, with twenty-five percent as a potential, you can do a lot in politics. With yeah, when you have a plan, when you have a vision, when you have the energy, when you have an afraid or a cowardly majority in front of you, that's enough. That's one point. The other point is that in the eastern part of Germany, the alternative for Germany will become the strongest power in the next years. That's cast in stone, basically. 
in Saxonia, the alternative from, from, for Germany could be prevented by the CDU from becoming the strongest power, for example, last year. But for that, the CDU had to make a completely right-wing campaign, which also was absolutely clashing with the course of Angela Merkel's Berlin CDU and was basically consisted half of agitation against Angela Merkel from her own party. Mm -hmm. But I think that the east of Germany is also institutionally very weak. It's much smaller. It is much poorer. It does not have neither the soft nor the hard power in Germany. If those eastern states decide to become Nazis again, I don't think they will be. They will have the chance to take over Germany. And now comes one point which will be of interest um, to those who follow German politics. Right now, right now, as we speak, basically, there is a one more power struggle in the IFD. So the IFD, the alternative for Germany, has had several brutal power struggles in its history, and the right wing part has always won. But now the remaining not so right-wing part, no, no, not the right-wing part, the more right-wing part, the more extremist right-wing parts have always won. But now the less extremist right-wing part have, have dug in their heels uh, a bit and have actually managed to expel just yesterday or the day before yesterday one of the leading figures of right-wing extremism in the IFD. They have managed to expel him, like basically by they have staged a coup Mm-hmm. In, uh, in the leadership of the party and managed to expel him from the party. Let's see how that happens. I still have the hope that the party splits up between East and West. I, don't, I think they're too clever for that, but that's my personal hope. They split up between East and West. Because, and, and that, that's, that's a good thing, the Eastern alternative for Germany is able to find, will be able to find simple majorities in the East. I think that, ca- stop, that, that is, die is cast. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the radicalism of the Eastern part of the alternative for Germany is clearly and obviously preventing the Western parts from having electoral success. Because for the most part of the Western bourgeoisie, of, uh, for the most part of the Western middle class, those people are not electable. Like a guy like Björn Höcke, who... like. I'm really careful with Nazi comparisons. I really don't like them. And I think they're a very cheap, cheap, like you can say they're a cheap ammunition. If you want to, yeah. if you want to like achieve a cheap shot, you just say he's a Nazi. But this Höcke guy, really, uh, he's, he's like, he's like recalling to romantic German nationalism from the 19th century. And he really uh, is, is a bit of a Nazi. Mm-hmm. He really has not so much difference. And um, I hope the party will split. And just as a very basic question, because I'm not, I don't know uh, a lot about this, but um, has Merkel decided to stay on for longer because of the crisis, or is she still on her way out? Well, but the, actually, that you even ask, this shows that you you're quite well informed. Obviously, um, that's unclear, but I think she's she has already she has already dismissed the idea because it was not her idea that she would stay should stay longer because of the crisis but someone else's idea and she has already said no to it. Okay. So in of the Of course I I will miss her I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean in the succession for the CDU leadership um is the sort of anti-immigrant right-wing sentiment getting a hearing. Um well like the sort of like the chancellor candidate for the next election kind of pivot the party away from the center in that regard. Yes and no. 
the thing is Angela Merkel has represented the utmost left wing within her party when it comes to when it comes to especially this so-called refugee problem so anybody who comes after her anybody even her own hand-picked successor Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer the woman with the name that nobody can pronounce uh, Kramp-Karrenbauer yeah it's, it's it's not easy um, even she was to the right of Angela Merkel on on this question yeah She was the handpicked successor, but she has already she has, she has failed. She is she is she will she will flunk out mm-hmm. of the party leadership. But I don't think that this necessarily means that we will see a CDU that will build up upon anti-immigrant sentiment. But I'm more afraid of anti-Muslim sentiment in the CDU because. The idea that you should not let people in because they're not Germans is not not mainstream in the CDU. That would be seen as racist. But the idea that Muslims represent a cultural challenge to Germany, or that they're culturally not integrated, that they're a cultural they are a cultural problem, that is a lot more common in the CDU. And I think I can here say something. I have just said that I hope that the less right-wing extremist part of the IFD will will um, be able to kick out the more extremist part. But I say this not because I like them more, but because I think that this will weaken the party when the party splits up. Sure. Because because the more right-wing extremist people in the IFD, they have certainly, in terms of policy, they have radical ideas that the other people have not. Uh, but they're ethno-pluralists mostly. They're have the opinion that the foreigners should stay where they belong. The less right-wing extremist part of the parts of the AfD profit from a very special German sentiment, which I will probably talk about later. It is that in Germany, nationalism is perceived as more sympathetic when it is not German nationalism. Hmm. By that I mean, in this concrete case, significant parts of the less extremist wing of the Alternative for Germany party see themselves not so much as German nationalists, especially not as exclusivist German nationalists, but as Western nationalists in a band with nativist movements in other parts of Europe, in the other parts of the Western or white world, For example, also in an alliance with America, a guy like Björn Höcke, who is the figurehead of the those right-wing extremists in the AfD, those people remembering of the the twenties, mostly the nineteen twenties, with their their folkish movements, who were romanticizing their own race to the uh, to the point of parody. He surely doesn't like America, but those people who like America, I personally tend to dislike even more because those people who are more liberal, and really I mean more liberal, they perceive themselves as more liberal, more capitalist, more for personal freedoms than a guy like Björn Höcke, um, more cosmopolitan, they believe in the world war against Islam. They are much more influenced by neoconservatism, by the counter-jihad movement, And they believe that not that the problem is not the Germans against the foreign races, but the Western 
the Western community against Muslim barbarism, which mm-hmm. I think has ge- geopolitically led to more catastrophe in the last decades. I mean, the Iraq war certainly was worse than any, anything. Even someone like Donald Trump with his nativism has done, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, of, yeah. obviously, obviously, yeah. And also, so I, I think the same, probably for me and my wife, uh, Björn Höcke would be a catastrophe as the German chancellor, chancellor but I think um, some counter-jihadists, people with a counter-jihadist idea of the final war of Muslims as, as like the, the boss enemy of the teleology of human freedom and dignity could be even worse for the world mm-hmm. if yeah yeah we actually uh tom and i had a conversation about this uh earlier in the week um where i was sort of worried about the same sort of things uh in terms of uh you know this clash of civilizations narrative uh becoming you know prominent again in different ways and uh you know i don't know so um at the same time i i mean i want to get back into maybe some of the stuff that you had prepared to talk about um, you know, some of the notes that you had brought to the conversation, because, um, you know, we, uh, I don't want you to have to, you know, I want, I want you to be able to get through some of the stuff that you wanted to, uh, yeah. talk but about. I can add so. one more, I could add sure. one more thing that connects those two things. Sure. And that is, I have also, of course, experienced racism in the West when working in the West of mm-hmm. Germany, but this was then far less ethnic nationalism or rather like a general hatred of foreigners, a general xenophobia, which people were often unable to even explain politically, just like they we hate them, um, but more um, Islamophobia in terms of the idea that the Muslims are the ones that are culturally dragging Germany back towards bad, worse times. For example, I have once, um, I held, which was, it was very successful, I held lectures for a youth office in a large Western German town, a rich town also, a very modern town, and afterwards um, a woman approached me, and she was in a high position in the youth office of the town, and she was um, probably 40-ish, and she was wearing like a blazer and trousers, and she asked me a question about a decision to expel a pupil from a school. And I almost fainted because they had expelled this poor guy basically because he had done an umrah, because he had done a short yeah. pilgrimage to Mecca. Yes, yeah, he had he done like that with a school or something to do that. He was Is expelled. That what it was? Yeah, yeah, he had, he had, he had, he had missed the day. Oh. But that's not bad. That's not a problem. That's right, not a right, to expel right. Him. Yeah. It was a seventeen-year-old boy who was actually he was like a Moroccan who wanted to to become um, a special needs uh, educator, like like what what would be the word? Not a teacher, but but uh, someone who cares for children with special needs. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and they had expelled him because he had done Umrah, the pilgrimage to Mecca, I mean, the small pilgrimage, with a known Salafist. Okay, with a travel group of a known Salafist. But but still, that's that's not that's not a reason to expel him from, from school. And to these two points, first of all, thankfully, that woman listened to me when I told, told, told her, first, that's not a reason to expel him. Second, the Salafist has become much, much more harmless. And especially he has started to denounce violence for several years now. Because before that, he was indeed a figure, I would say, very problematic. Now he's like, he's become like an apolitical Salafist. Before that, he was like, always like edge lording with supporting Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Right. Um, 
And it was also, it was still only his travel group. I don't know if you, if you know, but those Muslim diaspora organizations, they, they, they don't work, work like this. You don't, you don't book a ticket to this Umrah if you're a, a six, 17 year old necessarily because you agree with their political points of view. Right. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And also I was, I, I, I called the social worker of the school later to see what had happened. And he said that thankfully the boy was able uh, to force his way back into school with the help of, of, of the court. But he, the social worker of the school, told me that on the next day, young Turkish girls in hot pants with uh, long fake eyelashes, dyed hair and lots of makeup were sitting at the schoolyard crying. Because everybody in the school with a migration percentage of like 95%, everybody. I mean, this was actually the boy had become more religious and he had started to grow a beard and talk about religion more. That's that's all true. So he had, he had become very religious. But even those, those girls with the hot pants were crying because they knew this is not, this is something against us as Muslims. This, he was expelled, not because he's, Radical. We all know he isn't, but because there's a climate of uh, suspicion against us Muslims. Mm. So they were upset, like they felt it was an attack on them as, as Muslims as well. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. You you had some ideas about the way that the Holocaust is treated in Germany and in Israel, and and just some ideas about the state of Israel and things like that. Mm -hmm. mm, I can start with my main idea and I want to give a disclaimer. What I say now probably my mind might sound a bit um, polemic or even, even as if I were making fun of it. But for 95%, I'm very thankful that these cultures exist, both anti-racist culture and the culture that fights against um, anti-Semitism and tries to preserve the memory of the Holocaust. 99%, I'm thankful for them to exist, not 95, 99%. But I will talk about some, some aspects that, in my opinion, are worth noticing, and I will try to connect it with uh, political developments in the world and with the public debate that is going on in Germany right now, the last, last two weeks. So I have noticed that, in my opinion, Uh, a lot of the frustration... Okay, first I need to explain the frustration. Many left-wings, left-wing people, especially from countries like the US, are anti-Zionists. They believe Israel to be a colonial state, to be a white state, to be a, a settler state, to be a, a conquering state, and entity and artificial entity that's a term very often used it's a translation from arabic an artificial entity not native to the region and that it uh, that basically israel is the crystallization point of colonialism in our time with the existence of israel and with the obvious injustice happening in palestine the issue of decolonization stands uh, rises and falls Those people are often very frustrated when they somehow dive into the German discourse on this and notice that in Germany, even a substantial amount of leftists 
is very uncritical and very praising of the state of Israel. Now, how does that even come when we know that in most or all states in the world, the left wing usually does not like Israel? If you go to European countries like like Italy, Ireland, Spain, France, England, in the US to a lesser extent, but even there so, and even and strongly rising right now, anti-Israel sentiment is dominant. In Germany, there's even a large strain of leftism, which is not even not so critical of Israel, but extremely, uh, but 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 sees political loyalty to to Israel like unconditional loyalty. And I'm I'm translating here. I'm not making this up. Seeing unconditional loyalty to the state of Israel and its chosen policy as the duty of every reflected human being in the world. Now, how does that come? And I want to try to give a bit of more of an understanding for how leftists in Germany come to embrace Israel by making a comparison to anti-racism. So one of the one of the sentences that you when when you talk about modern uh, progressivism and especially the anti-racist part of modern progressivism is the idea that the perspectives of the oppressed need to be centered. Yeah, on 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 black Twitter this would read as. Of course, I will not go down to try to emulate a African American vernacular. I can't do it, and it would be stupid, and it would be racist too. But it would be just, white people should sit down and listen. They should sit their ass down and listen to black people. The idea is that uh, the privilege white people in the U.S. have enjoyed for so long has made them blind for the plight of black people, and has has even normalized their own privilege them i mean we we all know probably by this point what is meant there are terms that explain this like white fragility the inability of white people to deal with being confronted with their own privilege even if it's not even a criticism of them as a person but just a criticism of a social social structure that they perceive this as a criticism of their personal beings um the idea of um Yeah, as I mentioned, white privilege, the idea that there's systematic racism that not only discriminates against black people, but lets white people reap the fruits of this discrimination, which is better treatment for themselves, better options, more privilege. Um, And now I want the listeners to try to imagine the following. What happens if left-wing progressivism kind of wins in the American mainstream? And what if the perspective, for example, on black people in the US, if the point of views that the 1619 project of the New York Times or people like Ibrahim Kendi or Michael Harriet have about American society would become mainstream? I mean, how would America look like? Basically, the 1619 project says that slavery is that the fundament of everything that is American and that black people are the fundament of all struggle for what has, has what is good in America, which I think is a rather sensible sentiment if I take personally a look at American history for myself. I'm not a very great fan of, of uh, American history and their uh, 
the relations between social groups in American history. Mm-hmm. Of course sure. not. Yeah, it's fairly um, reasonable. Yeah, I, I would yeah, say so. Yeah, it's fairly reasonable. But now imagine if 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 if, if this perspective, which st- strongly aims to center the perspective of the oppressed, both both for the reason that they want to center the perspectives that have been unheard, that have been underprivileged, and secondly, because of the idea that those who have been abusing their power for centuries are not fit to lay moral judgment at all, has become mainstream. And if you now try to transfer this back to Germany, then you have a society where a reckoning with the Holocaust, of course, it's very imperfect. And I will go on about this too. A reckoning with the former crimes has happened. And where there's a wide consensus that their own crimes, not their own greatness, are what fundamentally defines the nation. In Germany, this was a long struggle. There was one famous speech by a president in 1985. Then there was a debate between historians shortly later. Then there was the student revolt, which in Germany, of the the 68 generation, which in Germany strongly focused on anger against the continuities between Nazi Germany and the German Federal Republic. For example, the most famous left-wing terrorist murder in German history, the murder of Hans-Martin Schleyer by the communist um, Rote Armee Fraktion, Red Army Fraktion. The victim of their most famous political murder was not by coincidence a former SS officer who then became a very uh, high-ranking German manager or even even a a representative figure of German managers. Uh, Yeah? Um, And where there is not a complete consensus, obviously, but but there's a, a mainstream that defines the own nation via the idea that we are here together by negative covenant. We are here standing in the history of our forefathers having committed the most devastating crime in human history, the Holocaust. And our job is now to let this never happen again. The idea of never again, never again is obviously, it's a Jewish motto. But the German state has uh, step by step also um, adjusted its own core conception closer to this idea. For example, when Germany in 1999, for the first time since World War II, participated in a war, the then reigning, uh, co-reigning Green Party of Germany had a very bad power struggle over whether to support uh, participating in the uh, War of Yugoslavia in 1999 or not, together with the NATO, obviously. It was a NATO mandate against the Serbian genocide against Bosnians and also against other groups and generally against the war, to stop the war. And um, the then leader of the Green Party famously held a speech in which he decreed for him it was not contradictory of the German history to, to participate in this war, but it was a necessary, a necessary reflection of German history to participate in this war because the underlying sense of the German state 
is to prevent something like Auschwitz again. So never again means never again genocide. And and happening genocide can only be stopped by military force. So German, Germany has to participate in this war because of Auschwitz. Because of Auschwitz, Germany has to make war again. So what role do the Jews play? In this universe, the Jews play the role of the victim. And penitence has to be shown towards, towards those victims and the children of the victim. Again, if we, um, if we translate this to the US, this sounds paradisic, uh, paradisic. Correct? Correctly spelled? Yeah, yeah. Paradisic. This sounds paradisic compared to the recent uh, recent conditions in the US where you have a disgustingly racist US president was elected on an agenda of racism where black people are discriminated, where black people are ridiculed still, where black people are murdered by the police and where a large part of the nation still thinks that the southern states uh, led the civil war because of states' rights and not because of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, to, to to have an idea where the former victims are uni- are in the mainstream acknowledged to be the subjects of of penitence and of wiedergutmachung in German, like would be like betterment to make good again. Yeah, to make good. That sounds paradisic from a U.S. perspective. Um, and I think it's also very good that it's like this in Germany. But it has also led to this phenomena, which I have described first, which is why in Germany there's a pro-Israel left. Because, and this can also be, it can also be retraced by following the logic of, some people call it woke, woke uh, anti-racism in the US. The idea is Jewish people are the victims. The victims have the right to defend themselves from harm the way they want and the perpetrators or the families of the perpetrators the the group of the perpetrators has no right to judge them on these measures and it has the even the obligation to support them so now comes the point while most leftists around the world see israel as an outcome of european colonialism the left-wing or liberal intellectuals' uh, conception of Israel and Germany is very strongly tied to the German history of what happened to the Jews in Germany. So in Germany, people would say Israel is a safe space. You see? Mm -hmm. You have terminological similarities easily if you look for them. They would say Israel is a safe space, and this is almost this is almost a word-for-word translation of a of a, of, a, of a, the German term Schutzraum. It's a, it's, a, it's a literal translation. Israel is a safe space against anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism has proven itself to be the most destructive, most murderous political idea of all time. Now, if we translate this to America again, it sounds very good. Racism has proven itself to be the most destructive idea of all time. Black nationalism, black self-defense, black self-help, yeah, and white people sitting down and listening is necessary to overcome this and necessary to protect from it happening again. Sounds wonderful, right? 
Um, yeah, yeah, to a point, right? Yeah, right. Um, and this explains, in my opinion, rather easily why there is a pro-Israel left in Germany. Because those Germans have, as you might say, sat down and listened. And when Jewish people, the Jewish people decided <laughs> decided to say we want or we found a state to protect ourselves from anti-Semitism, to have finally our own homeland where we're independent, German leftists said, okay, we will support you. I mean, not all German leftists, by, by the way, Uh, but the pro-Israel German leftists, pro-Israel German leftists. There are quite a few anti-Israel German leftists and um, even anti-Semitic terror attacks by German leftists in the past. But I'm talking about the pro-Israel mainstream in Germany. By that, I do not want to say that Israel has is not criticized in Germany. This is another point, just, just to, to, to take a short light on that. In Germany, you will have many people who support Palestinians, For not for because they care for Palestinians, but because they like to accuse Jews of things, you know. Sure, anti-Semitism yeah. is not dead at all in Germany, not at all. But I'm talking about the pro-Israeli mainstream in Germany and how it works. Now, um, I have explained a bit about the importance of the Holocaust, the Shoah, for the German public culture and how it can easily be explained why left-wing left -wing and left-wing liberal parts of German society have a very positive conception of the state of Israel. Now I want to talk about uh, the question which I just now described how the German, uh, how Germans see it, how Israel is a colonial state, because that is also a very important question. I will not give a definite answer on it, but I will poke into some uh, left-wing, especially left-wing Muslim uh, sensibilities in with uh, to, to to that topic and i will i will i will i want to give it a historical reality check of, of a kind of a bit of a bit of a kind um and that is that this german perception of israel as a safe space against anti-semitism is not really true from the perspective of the palestinians surely but it is true from the perspective of the european jews Who conceived Israel. Mm -hmm. So the first Zionists, the history of Zionism in the 19th century did not spring, did not, does not stem from Jews declaring, okay, I want to be a colonizer now. Yeah, Okay, my European buddies, Britain, France, United States, support me, I want to be a colonizer too. That is not what happened. Um, The, the, the earliest roots of Zionism were also a kind of Jewish self-defense. Yeah? Among the proto-Zionists, as they're called. For example, among them was a German doctor. His name was Max Nordau. And he founded a lot of Jewish, um, Jewish, athletic, Jewish athletic clubs, uh, athletic associations with the aim to shape a new Jew, yeah? a, a neuer Jude, a new Jew, which would not be the weak Jew of old, but he would be a muscular Jew who would be able to defend himself from anti-Semitism and who would be truly masculine yeah, and not effeminate anymore. Um, and indeed, Theodor Herzl, the inventor of the modern idea of Zionism, at first was an assimilationist. He wanted the Jews to assimilate. 
Yeah, and there's a famous anecdote that even after he had become a Zionist, he had a Christmas tree in his house. <laughs> and when when he invited a rabbi to discuss his idea of Zionism with a rabbi, the rabbi saw the Christmas tree. The rabbi left the house and never came back. He just immediately stormed out. He said, "Not with this guy. He has a Christmas tree in his house, and he wants to talk about how he about Jew Jew Judaism." Never. <laughs> um, I didn't know that. That's very funny. Yeah, that, that's an anecdote taught in the book by historian Michael Brenner. Um, so, but Herzl changed his opinion, and he changed his opinion after the Dreyfus affair, after this giant anti-Semitic scandal in uh, in France, after after a Jewish officer had um, had been wrongly accused of spying for the Germans, and even after his innocence had been shown. He was only acquitted after long years because significant parts of the French society and especially the military had openly said, rather, we let this Jewish officer die in, in, the, in this hellish prison which we have sent him to than to acknowledge that we have wronged this Jew. After that, Herzl changed his opinion and he conceived of, of the Jewish state the, the Judenstaat, the Jewish state, as a safe space from anti-Semitism. Now, at the same time, of course, that was not the only idea Herzl had. He had also other ideas, which were part and parcel of his time and his space. And indeed, two of those ideas were nationalism, ethnic nationalism, and colonialism. The uh, Zionist solution to the so-called Jewish question, a term that everybody used at that time, because it is even it is even a very it is a rather neutral term at that time, because there was the problem problem of anti-Semitism, and if you might want to reframe it, you can call it the Jewish question. But yeah, you see what I mean. Right. Um, the solution to the uh, Jewish question was a Jewish brand of nationalism. And this nationalism obviously was closely modeled to the um, to the role models of the European nation states, like Germany, for example, uh, and belonging to the German to the European nationalisms at at that time were indeed the idea of European superiority over non-Europeans. Right. I mean, and, and this marked the Israeli, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, colonization efforts very much so. Like they were building parallel institutions, you know, to kind of either be a place for the, the European Jews to go to, you know, hospitals and uh, schools and things like that. And then eventually yeah. those came to be like uh, replacements for the indigenous institutions. Right, right, right. Actually, this was even in the first phase of the so-called Aliyah, the um, right. Zionist migration to Palestine. This was even not, 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 not entirely sure. For example, there are very, very funny photos exist of David Ben Gurion, the uh, first um, Israeli prime minister, uh, in Ottoman garb with a face, with a red hat, with a red face, mm -hmm. and dressed like an like an Ottoman notable, like an like an rich Ottoman uh, Ottoman man. Um, because 
now I now I, I'm coming to the point where it gets hybridity. Okay, er, Jew early Zionism was invented as the idea we Jews need to protect ourselves from those Europeans. What do we do? We follow the tide of our time and invent our own nationalism. This nationalism had very chauvinistic elements. It was ethno-nationalist because Jewish religion is an ethno-religion. This was from the first moment it was clear. And it also had the idea that when Israel is founded, there does not need to be taken a lot of uh, consideration about the non-Jewish people that might live there because Herzl, uh, it is obviously Herzl did not discuss did not detail where the Jewish state should be. But but he detailed that if natives exist, they would be happy because the Jews would be bringing European civilization. Yeah, so that was, that's it. That was it for Herzl. There was not, not so much more yeah, about it. I mean, of course, he comes back to this issue again and again, but that's his whole idea. They will have no problem because we will bring them civilization. Uh, but now another strain of Jewish nationalism in the 19th century was also the distancing from Europe. As I said, it was a movement against European anti-Semitism and as such against Europe too. The Zionist movement at all times, with, with one exception, I will go into this, has always had the idea that it must distance itself from Europe because Jews are not Europeans. Now, this has a very interesting relation with anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism, especially biological anti-Semitism, also, of course, held that Jews are not Europeans, that Jews are Orientals. One scholar, Gil Anijahis, even went so far as to say, well, when the Jews were persecuted by the Nazis, the Nazis were not persecuting the Jews, they were persecuting an imagined Muslim because Anijah <laughs> thinks that Jews were perceived as an oriental stereotype and this oriental stereotype is much older than modern anti-semitism and it was strongly influenced by European hatred of Muslims from the time of the medieval period. I think that is complete bullshit but it is interesting to know that this idea, I mean Anijah is bullshit, and, but it is important to know that the idea Jews are not part of Europe, they do not belong here was both extremely common amongst non-Jews in Europe and amongst Jews themselves. So, um, if you if you take a look at this, this is a much more complicated topic, but if you look at European synagogues that were built in the 19th century, very often they're built like mosques. Yeah, Why are they built like mosques? One reason is because the Jews wanted to uh, remember of Al-Andalus, which they saw as a very free and also very enlightened uh, times so very liberal, very assimilationist. Uh, Jewish communities built those synagogues, looking like mosques, because they said, "Well, we're enlightened Jews. We're as enlightened as our Andalusian forefathers, like Moses Maimonides, mm -hmm. the great philosopher. We're building mosques in his style." Yeah, pr But probably also, not so much emulating yeah. mosques so much as just replicating like a more a sense of like this is what our forefathers oriental did. architecture yes yeah, but exactly yeah it's definitely oriental architecture and quite often it really does look like mosques yeah sure actually. sure for sure okay, yeah yeah but you're right of course you're right but also orthodox uh, communities um build 
those mosques and a lot of Jews would have followed the idea that Jews are indeed not belonging to Europe. And now this is something which is completely un unusual for European colonization. No European colonizer has ever said, we're coming here as natives. Yeah, mm -hmm. The opposite, the idea to conquer the land, the white man's burden to civilize or even to ex ex exterminate the natives has always been a very important part of European colonialism. Yeah, I think the, the idea only to thing, exploit. Yeah. Sorry, I think the only similar similar case that I can think of is like Liberia. Liberia, but that's not European colonialism, no, right? No, it's not. You're right. Yeah, right. you see, you see. Now you see that that's hybridity. That's the hybridity I wanted to talk about. Right. Indeed, the only comparison would be Liberia. Who would compare Liberia to Israel? Um, yeah, so 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 you hear here already a kind of hybridity uh, appears that is very unnerving to some some uh, people who want to view Israel purely through a settler colonialist lens. Because which settler colonizer said, "I I'm coming to this land because I am originally part of this land, and I wanna I wanna uh, me and the land are one and the same." But on the yeah. other hand, obviously, this is all very hybrid. Obviously, one important strain of Zionism rejected this idea fully, the so-called revisionist Zionism, which is to this day very important. For example, in the, in the Likud party, its most famous exponent would be Vladimir uh, Zeev Jabotinsky, mm -hmm. who was already among Zionists at that time, in the 1920s, 1930s, known for his hardline stance against Arabs, which is why Zeev Jabotinsky, as he called himself, was named Vladimir Hitler by some of his opponents, Zionist opponents. Um, and Jabotinsky had the idea that any kind of romantic self-orientalization would only lead to the downfall of the Zionist projects. And he said, uh, the Jew in Palestine is either colonizer or he is not at all. Because without... Uh, the pioneer spirit of an European colonizer and without a strong commitment to European ways of being superior, yeah, you might say to whiteness. You might say that in, in this case. Mm -hmm. I mean, retrospectively. Uh, without that, we will, we will not be able to gain a foothold. We will not be able to, 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 to erect a Jewish state. Yeah, and at this, at this uh, angle, it is clearly colonial. I mean, and that's also one very uh, one funny thing to um, to post-colonial anti-Zionists who say that Israel is a European settler colony. I say that how do you explain a settler colony that was uh, um, that was founded by people who were basically refugees from uh, from, from from European persecution. And then okay, then you can point to the to the, the pilgrims in America, obviously. But I think I have already established why this is an amount of hybridity. Right. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think yeah, that's a very the, good parallel, but it's there is some yeah. similarities. But on the other hand, you can obviously uh, point to people who will say that Israel has no colonial elements at all. That some of the most important Zionist thinkers even said that Israel should be the ideal model of European colonization, of European settler colonization. Yeah? Yeah. And said that Israel must be as colonial as possible. Um, so, but 
now we're 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 coming we're coming even to another spot. So the, the when, but when we look at the people itself, the first colonists that came to Israel to to the land of Palestine, the first Aliyah, the first migration of Jews, consisted of poor Russian Jews who were paid by uh, West European Jewish donors from France and from Germany who would not even in their dreams think about becoming peasants in Palestine but who wanted to do something good for their poor brethren in Eastern Europe. So it was a philanthropic endeavor. They were, uh, there were quite a few, of course, very wealthy Jews in, um, in Germany and in, in, in France. And they paid for those ideas by the Zionists to ship some Eastern European Jews who were uh, wretched in the Tsarist uh, anti-Semitic empire were victims of pogroms and discrimination, uh, to ship them to Palestine. That was the first wave of Zionist migration. Then, later, uh, and here it is clear why we have an element of victimhood with, with those Zionist settlers even. Later, a later wave of Zionist migration were German Jews persecuted by the Nazis in the 30s. Here it is even clear, even more clear. And then later, in the Beginning in 1948, we have something which is to this day either ignored or bizarrely misrepresented in a lot of post-colonial perspectives or Muslim perspectives for that case on the state of Israel. And that is the arrival of the Oriental Jews, the Misrahim, Misrahim to Israel. And that is basically uh, that in this year, 2020, more than half of the Jews of Israel are not of European heritage. They're not the descendants of Europeans who came as colonizers or as refugees to Palestine, but of the Oriental Jews, the Jews from countries as diverse as Iran, Yemen, Iraq, Egypt, Algeria, Morocco, Syria... Turkey also in, in, in that, that, that case. Um, and those people came to Israel for a variety of reasons. But the single most important reason probably was the widespread discrimination that Jews experienced, especially in the Arab world, after the foundation of Israel. Because in this period, it was a period of decolonization. It was the period of independent struggles in countries like Algeria, violent in Algeria, not violent in Morocco. Um, the anger of Arab nationalism about the foundation of Israel found an easy lightning rod, and that's the uh, native Jews. Yeah. What, and What yeah. do you... Um, so the, the typical narrative that I have heard from some leftists and more commonly from Muslims is that these instances of persecution and whatnot that uh, these people experienced were kind of like false flag, you know, orchestrated by the, like the proto Israeli intelligence agencies and stuff like that. What, what, what do you think about that idea? Those are simply lies. That's, that's about the same level as when you, when you say that, um, ISIS was really uh, like an Israeli conspiracy. Or if you if you say that um, 
like to look at a different example, yes, that uh, Muslim men in India want to convert the country to Islam by raping Hindu mm-hmm. women. It's about it's about that that level. It's 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 nonsense. Of course, the Israeli intelligence service <laughs> tried to tried to do everything they could to get those Jews to Israel, and uh, there were some instances where um, provocations happened by the Israeli intelligence service to trigger social unrest against Jews. That happened. But those were single instances. And none of those... That's, I mean, this is so... This is infantilizing to no end. This is is lacrimosity to to the maximum extent. Uh, Even if the proto-Mossad or the existing Mossad had tried all in their might to, uh, to... to divide Jews and non-Jews in the Arab countries, nobody forced the Arabs to uh, to follow suit, right? Nobody. Mm-hmm. It is a fact, it's easy provable, provable fact, how pogroms against Jews happened in Egypt and in Syria. It's easily provable how they were treated in Yemen and how they basically had to flee Yemen. It's easily provable that after the Moroccan independence, the... Uh, the French had used the Algerian Jews as a middleman minority, as a, in their divide and conquer rule. The French had granted citizenship to the Algerian Jews, but not to Algerian Muslims. Algerian Muslims could not become French French citizens. Um, after the Algerian Revolution, the Jews were basically expelled from the country completely. Uh, in a in a in a country like Iraq, it took a little longer, also because the Jews were very middle class in 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 Iraq and even a part of the govern of many governments. But uh, in the seventies, it was in sixties and seventies, it was over over there too, and their persecution of the Jews was one of the worst. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I I tend to agree with you that that's basically how these things work. I mean, just in general, I any theory that relies entirely on this intelligence agency just created something out of scratch it that's not really how things work you know maybe they can kind of push things a little bit like if it's close to the edge they can push it over that edge but it very rarely can just you know some organization just completely orchestrate something on that scale you know yeah yeah right of course i i agree that's that's you're completely right that is that is uh, one of the most important tools of judgment you gotta have when you um when you think about the history of politics. Um, so, but those Jews came to Israel, and now comes uh, the second narrative from uh, post, uh, the second post-colonial narrative. Those post-colonials that acknowledge the fact that the Jews, or that there are Oriental Jews in Israel, and that they probably even were discriminated against beforehand, will say, but now they're oppressed by Israel too. And this proves that Israel is a white supremacist state because Israel does not only uh, oppress Muslims and Arabs, but it also oppresses non-white Jews, non-European Jews. That is typical settler colonial white European behavior. Um, and of course, there's a lot of truth about that. The Israeli treatment of uh, Oriental Jews was often very disgusting. And in case of the Ethiopian Jews, uh, I will not say, uh, of course, not use a um, too strong word, but uh, there were, I mean, just to give one example, after the Ethiopian Jews came to Israel, because Israel brought them to Israel when Ethiopia was sinking in a famine and in political chaos, um, Ethiopian Jewish women 
were forcibly uh, sterilized. Not not sterilized, but um, they were forcibly yeah sterilized. Yeah, for, no, but it was it was not permanent. How oh. do you call it? Um, because, because I'm not sure. People, I was always under the impression it was sterilization. No, con- they were giving they were given forcible contraception methods. I see. Yeah? Okay. Um, because of course. They, those people, those Oriental people with their many children were seen as um, as barbaric and as backwards and they needed to be controlled in order that they could be made suit into a modern society. Uh, and there's this, for example, there's a famous a famous uh, sketch from Israeli television. It's, it's a bit funny, which details every new wave of Jewish immigration to Palestine and their uh, idiosyncrasies. For example, the when the German Jews come, they uh, start to yodel like, <laughs> and they're wearing leather pants. And they call, they call themselves like Professor Auerbach, Professor Salzburg, Dr. Salzburg, Professor Salzburg. <laughs> um, like this, because they're also educated. But um, it's a sketch from the Israeli televisions in the 70s. And the depiction of the Yemeni Jews is extremely racist. They're like very vile caricatures as, as you would expect them from someone like Robert Spencer or Pamela Geller about Muslims, right? Right. Um, it was seen as the oriental filth. Uh, and, and that is true. But still, at the same time, it is true that the strongest supporters of Israeli right-wing parties, of parties like uh, uh, Habayit Hayhudi, I hope I pronounced this correctly. I do not speak Hebrew. Of Likud, obviously, and also of uh, ultra-Orthodox religious parties, those parties are the strongestly rooted among the Mizrahi, the Oriental Jewish population of Israel. And the major reason for this is not, as probably Ella Shohat, uh, Iraqi Jewish left-wing academic, uh, wants to make believe the reason that they want to overcompensate for the discrimination they experience, but mostly that they really do not like the Arabs, do not like the Muslims, and do not have any any philanthropic philanthropic uh, intentions towards them at all. And that is rooted in history. And this is basic, in my opinion, this is common sense. Be- yeah, because, because of their ex- ex- being expelled from Arab countries, you're saying? Like that sort of heritage um, becomes yeah. like a foundational of their sort of right. non, uh, yeah. you know, not attributing the same sort of values of humanity or something to yeah. Arabs. So, um, no, I mean it's interesting. I I, I like uh, I do like the way that you are thinking about these sort of problems and the way that you know I, a lot of the people that we talk to or you know know online and stuff are very you know as you said like there is sort of like an ascendant anti-Israeli sort of left, uh, especially in the United States and places. And, um, you know, uh, the part of the issue with that is that uh, um, in online debates, it tends to be very trying to find very simple answers to very difficult sort of problems um, and you know, using very simple arguments. What I like about, you know, sort of the narrative that you're giving is that uh, it's not necessarily satisfying to ideologues, right? It's not like uh, um, a person that, you know, the, the more that you look into the problem, the more you see, like, you know, the hybridity, the the difficulties with taking an easy position on this or that. It's There's a lot of uh, sort of competing values at play and a lot of diversity 
within the groups that you're sort of focusing on. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting. So thank you for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, just, just, just to add to this, of course, this is not my coherent point of view of the uh, Israeli conflict, just as my strong criticism of the pro-Israeli German left that will, will follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is, my coherent view on Israel, but it's just that I have this strong urge to to criticize the, in my opinion, simplifications that, especially in this case, happen on on, on all sides sure. a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, for example, for example, I could um, I could now make 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 the uh, go over. I could now uh, make the connection. Sure. So now I have just said that the Oriental Jews in Israel vote quite right wingishly. That, among others, that does mean that Israel has a prime minister for over 10 years now who is a despicable person. And that is something even many uh, many of his fans agree upon. He's, uh, he's known to lie all the time. He's known to be an extreme populist. He's known to think about tomorrow, but never about the day after tomorrow. And, um, for example, a lot of, I mean, even, even people like Ben Shapiro, yeah, even people like Ben Shapiro strongly criticized um, when Donald Trump banned Ilhan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib from entering uh, entering Israel um, because it was obvious that this whole issue led to a polarization of Israel partisanship in American politics that had never existed before since in the 60s and 70s America started to support Israel so much. So even people like Ben Shapiro who really has very disgusting views on this topic. Shapiro, um, for example, when, when I am asked to describe who's Ben Shapiro, I say Ben Shapiro is a right-wing extremist, an ethnic nationalist and a borderline fascist. And people say, okay, so bad. I say, no, not as an American, but as an Israeli. His point of views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are very radical right-wing extremist. Mm -hmm. His points of views in, in, in America itself are socially conservative, economically libertarian edgelordism. They're not, they're, they're not comparable to his um, brutal ethnic nationalism whenever he says something about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. But even someone like Shapiro said, wait, what is Donald Trump doing? He is making the issue of Israel-Palestine a partisan issue, and that's not what, what, what Israel needs. But uh, Donald Trump was not doing this alone. He was doing this with the support of Benjamin Netanyahu and in concert with Benjamin Netanyahu because obviously it was Israel's decision. Uh, but Israel did not... Uh, hardly nobody believes that this decision was undertook, undertaken without uh, consulting Donald Trump, the US government. Uh, so even, even very strong supporters of Israel had the opinion, what is Netanyahu doing? He's allowing... American support for Israel to potentially erode for short-term gains that portray him as the biggest ally and the biggest friend of the current U.S. president to win his win his next election, like the fifth election in a row. Um, and so that, that, that's Benjamin Netanyahu. Now the point is that Benjamin Netanyahu is not just a racist and um, and a liar, but he's also someone. I mean, of course, lots of politicians are racists and liars, but he definitely is one. But he's also someone who has um, who has tried to influence the culture of remembering the Shoah in Israel itself in a very negative way. The 
remembrance of the Shoah has always been one of the, con I mean, the Zionist pioneer on the one hand and the murdered Jew in Europe. Those two images have been, and especially the contrast between those two images, have always been the cornerstone of the, especially the secular Jewish identity and the Israeli Jewish identity. Um, so they're very important. But in this day and age, the Israeli politic is not just more right-wing, but the right-wingishness right of Israel is more out of concert with the uh, reigning values in the Western world. And this was especially true, obviously, in the time before Yair Bolsonaro and Donald Trump and all of this. I, I know that by now it is probably sadly changing a bit. Um, but Israel was already developing developing itself more to the right when this was not the case, for example, for the United States during the reign of Barack Obama. Um, and uh, this will lead to leads to uh, to the phenomena that the left wing supporters of Israel and Germany are getting into ideological trouble. Traditionally, even the left-wing supporters and liberal supporters of Israel and Germany had always been big uh, fangirls and fanboys of labor Zionism, of left-wing Zionism, of a Zionism uh, that was nominally not racist and of a Zionism that should, that or generally of the two-state solution. So most, so almost all German supporters of Israel had always been fans of the two-state solution. But the more the Israeli government itself steered away from this idea and steered towards clear ideas of annexation, ideas of perpetuating the uh, occupation of the West Bank, isolating the Gaza Strip, the more those German left-wing supporters of, of, uh, of Israel and Germany were forced to uh, adjust themselves to those policies because obviously when history is uh, when history's most important idea is the fight against its worst the worst impulse of humanity and that is anti-semitism then such uh, such small side stuff as uh, as um, some some Palestinians who are suffering from op occupation are not very important right yeah yeah so there has been a very, very funny, at times, turn in this part of the German left, which is pro-Israel, to become more and more hawkish and even to become more and more right-wing. And it has really led to the point where now many former exponents of uh, this German pro-Israel movement, and those were... Maoists originally, they were Maoists. They, this, this is an idea that came from German Maoism. Now, our right-wing extremists, some have, of them have become members of the Alternative for Germany even, <laughs> or they are conservative transatlantic uh, people who believe that America and Israel are the leading forces of freedom in the world. There, many of them are writing for conservative German media now. And one of the reasons is that those people had tied their identity 
to the idea that Israel and the United States, Israel as is the victims of the Nazis and America as the liberators from Nazism, hmm. represent moral good in this world. But as those two countries show that humans are just humans and develop themselves into bad directions, I mean, when, when in Israel, of, of course, you, many people will say Israel was always evil and will always be evil, blah, blah, blah. But I want to talk about the um, relative right-wing turn that Israel took in comparison to other Western nations, right? Um, when this nation and later America with Donald Trump develop into directions that fit not anymore, a cognitive dissonance appears. Uh, some people still stay in this cognitive dissonance, so I, I really, I, I know people who will be fanboys of Benjamin Netanyahu but call themselves communists. But other people just went with it and became just themselves conservative and right-wing, right-wing conservative people. And that is that is that is an that is an observation which I have made in the last years and which I found very very funny and also very telling about how such political loyalties develop and how it's often kind of irrational and a question of emotion probably. And that's why I, I wanted to talk about it today. And um, ah right, I forgot another topic which was very important to me, and that is uh, I want I, I started to insult Netanyahu. I, I did do that for a reason, and um, because I'm a good liberal German, what I re one of the things I dislike about Benjamin Netanyahu so much is how much he has desecrated the memory of the uh, of the Shoah. Hmm. Yeah, because as a, as a liberal German, for me the Memory of the Shoah is also something very important. I mean, I'm not even being polemic right now. I'm not joking. This is, I mean, I mean this, and um, I mean this is just, just how I am. It, it's honest, and it's very, it's, it's, it's sad for me as a historian, especially sad to see how, how strongly, uh, Islamophobic circles in Israel, the United States, and also in Germany are starting to distort and disfigure, bizarrely disfigure the memory of the Shoah for um, recent political events. So a few years ago, Benjamin Netanyahu publicly said, and this is something, this is not something put out of context. This is something nobody denies. Netanyahu said that the Nazis only started to exterminate the Jews because the then Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Amir al-Husseini, asked them to. That is so ridiculous that no historian has ever, yeah, has, has ever, has, has a, this, this is, this is out of, this is, this is outside of what can be seriously discussed. It is complete nonsense. Yeah, they Especially used to just know, post that one picture of him meeting Hitler and that yeah, was their Hitler, big Yeah, this proof, posted but, ever and ever and ever and ever. This picture, yeah. you see it everywhere. Although this picture had, from in, in the historic time in which it was taken, almost not, no significance. And uh, especially if you know who this great Mufti was. This great Mufti was a random guy. He did not have a religious education. Yeah. And who picked him? Who picked him as a great Mufti of Jerusalem? The British. Right. Why did they pick him? Because they thought he was stupid and he would be easily controlled. Yeah, he was some rich kid, and uh, yeah, that yeah. was totally out of sorts with like the general structure that those that kind of appointment was made. This was like a yeah. kind of an anomaly. 
Yeah, a professor I admire very much, an Israel, a professor in Israel studies, calls him the village idiot. He said just said <laughs> the village idiot. Every and he said once. I mean, he's not an anti-Zionist at all. I think he he's a supporter of Israel. He said Ah, Netanyahu talked about the village idiot yesterday again. What 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 did, what did he now do? Was he now Hitler himself? Um, and there's 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 a very 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 good but also painful example for this politicization of 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 history, which I think is very important history for all all of humanity, the history of, of, of the Shoah and um, how how there was a systematic campaign to exterminate exterminate whole people and how how uh, how the Nazis I mean how hate was systematically disattached from emotion, how how the how the genocide of the Jews was not one fit of rage. Yeah? And and, and then then it was over, but, but but how it was systematically decided to say we are killing every single one of them, yeah, and we need to do it as rationally as possible because only then we will succeed and we need to do it. Mm-hmm. How how this developed. But this is this is an this is another question. Probably if if you like if you like to talk about how deba- how the Holocaust happened from a structural point of view, and how probably the Holocaust can indeed be not firmly rooted, but how the history of colonialism and colonial genocides and colonial methods of demographic engineering played a role in in the Shoah, in, 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 in leading to the Shoah, then you can probably invite me another time. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, even there, there exists uh, in in Yad Vashem. The uh, Yad Vashem is the place for memory of the of the Holocaust of the Shoah in Israel, and they um, they added a lexicon, a lexicon of the Shoah. And in this lexicon of the Shoah, Hermann Göring, who gave the order for the final solution, so-called final solution of the Jewish question, has one one page, one and a half, one and a half. Uh, Goebbels. The major propagandist of anti-Semitism in, in all of in all of Europe at the time of the Nazis controlled it and in Nazi Germany has uh, I think three pages. Um, Adolf Hitler, no, he does not need explaining, has five pages. And you know who also has five pages, even a bit more than Hitler. Yeah, the great Mufti of Jerusalem, Amir Husseini. Yeah. That is that is that is a type of politicization of history that I mean that I think is not not worthy is not worthy the Jewish cultural tradition. It, it would this is about the most shameful abuse of um, of the public memory of the Shoah, which is so precious to Jewish people that you can imagine because obviously Amir al Husseini had nothing to do with the holocaust almost nothing yeah he, indeed indeed he, uh, he he appreciated of it as far as he even knew about it but he had absolutely nothing to do with the uh, racial and anti-semitic policies that the nazis enabled in europe because they were not even taking him seriously they were not taking him seriously because he was a muslim and they were not an oriental they were racists right mm-hmm. and they were not taking him seriously um, because they knew that he didn't have any real power <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I wonder way, how many yeah. pages, like you know, Henry Ford, for example, has in mm-hmm. the, in that. Lexicon, oh, yeah. that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Probably he is mentioned, but I don't know. That would be nice to 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 to, to look it up. Right, right. Very, 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 very good. Um, yeah. Mm, and so the, the last point in this this debate about um. In order in, the, in this question is that uh, there has been a public debate in Germany for the last two weeks where those things are all coming to the surface because um, post-colonial studies and the traditional German prioritization of remembering the Holocaust, the Shoah, as the ultimate crime and Israel as a safe space against anti-Semitism have clashed in public, uh, which has many reasons. One of them is dominance, in, indeed, of the Second World War in the German public consciousness. Another one is that the German colonialism indeed was much smaller, had much less impact on the German society itself. One was the genocide of the Herero and the Nama people in, in modern Namibia. It was a planned murder of, 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 those, of those, those people as a whole. Um, but it happened because uh, a famous... Uh, African scholar, African postcolonial scholar, Achille uh, Mbembi, was for the like 15th time invited to Germany to like a political festival. But then people objected suddenly. No, this man is an anti-Semite. Look what he has said about Israel. What Mbembi has said about Israel is basically just normal post- postcolonial stuff, and even it's much more mild. Than many other postcolonial writers, like someone like Edward Said would have said. Uh, Mambi's main idea is that the exploitation of Africa for slavery, for other economic gain through colonialism is the foundational moment of capitalism also. The idea of the complete commodification of humans, the idea to make humans pure, uh, pure resources and pure means for your exploitation and for your, your enrichment. He says the archetype, this is the colonization of Africa, but it is continued in capitalist society today around the world. So, but Mbembe even is, is generous enough to say that um, this condition of, 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 exploit, of exploitating the human extends to European societies today, which are uh, capitalist and is not just something that uh, separates white people from non-white people, as probably someone on Twitter would phrase it. But Mbembe says that for all of humanity, even the Europeans themselves, we have to abolish racial capitalism around the world. That is the major thesis of Achille, Achille Mbembe. But Bambi has also said some fairly standard post-colonial things about Israel, which is like that he has said, the Jews have not learned from their own oppression. Now they're the oppressor themselves. He has compared Israel to the apartheid regime in South Africa. And he has made, uh, he has said that in Israel, there's the element of the vengeful God of the Old Testament, which is, of course, an uh, I mean, you can argue if that's true or not, that the God of the Old Testament is very vengeful. But obviously this thought that the Old Testament God is vengeful and the God of the New Testament is uh, merciful is something which stems from anti-Judaistic theology in the Christian churches. And, and Bambi, has a, he, had, he was in a monk school 
actually, like like from the Dominican friars. So there might be some connection to that. But in Germany, this those things were enough to say that he should be disinvited from Germany, also because he has um, supported or not supported, that is unclear, BDS. He is obviously associated with the BDS movement, but in Germany, a law was passed that forbids the German uh, federal state from supporting anyone who is positively affirming BDS. Uh, was passed last year. And then there was this public debate. And I, I really want to make this short, but in this debate we could again see, or we could see basically for the first time in Germany, which I had already I had suspected this would happen already a few years ago, or like two or three years ago, a clash between the between the, oh, I only know the German word, Deutungshoheit, between the will to dominate the public discourse, between the post-colonial narrative and um, the anti-Semitic narrative, mm -hmm. which clash at the point, at two points. The first point is, uh, can the Shoah be compared to other crimes? In Germany, There's a rather strong taboo, not, not a complete taboo, obviously not everywhere, but a rather strong public taboo on comparing the Shoah to other atrocities. This taboo has obviously to do with the fact that in Germany, many people relativized the German crimes or even said, yeah, to us Germans was done the same as was done to the Jews after World War II. They did to us the same. So in Germany, this strong taboo came from... Uh, dealing with their own history, of saying there's can anything similar to, to what happened to the Jews. But now this taboo works against anti-post-colonialists who say that there were indeed things probably just as bad or comparable to the Holocaust during colonialism, other genocides. And this has led to contention. The other thing is, That is, is the idea of Israel as a colonial state, an illegitimate state, a white, white settler state, versus the idea of Israel as the safe space against anti-Semitism, which is necessary to protect from a next Holocaust. And so far this debate is undecided, and I'm happy that at least a lot of very intelligent things have also been said in the German newspapers during this debate. Also, lots of nonsense from both sides. <laughs> of course. Yeah, um, but I think it's it's a it's 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 a good illustration of what I have I have talked about so far. Yeah, I think it's really it's very interesting because the debate is breaking down along lines where both if we follow the narrative that you've kind of laid out for us, both sides have some validity to it, and you would not like to see them at odds, really. You, you like this nature of the hybridity of the Israeli state. I think you want to have some sort of understanding of that, which includes the safe space narrative that you've described, but also the colonial character of the state as well. And, and you need to reckon with with both of those aspects of it to really get to the you know the truth of the matter instead of having these dueling narratives that are both reductionist and simplified and don't really get to uh, what's actually going on there and, and then because of that will not arrive at any kind of workable solution yeah yeah i i think so i think actually i'm 
when it when it comes to the conflict itself, I'm obviously I'm a, I'm a bit more black pilled, and I, I I just really hope my personal hope for the um, for the Israeli Palestinian conflict is basically nothing more than that a, re- a progressive president would be elected in the U.S. who forces Israel to make concessions, because the Palestinians, as 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 a militant as as Palestinians might give themselves or behave themselves, the Palestinians know in which position they are, and I am for myself convinced that uh, if there was a deal that Palestinians could accept, they would take it. Oh, yeah. I, regardless, I, I, of, regardless of what Hamas, uh, Hamas says about how they will forever fight Zionism. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I th- in my experience, Palestinians are very realistic about their circumstances and cynical about you know Hamas and all this have very little support. And even I think people who do support them don't do so from a a sense that that that's the way to victory or something i i think that that is basically just a way of like lashing out um so yeah i agree i think like any the the best ideal thing like that's realistic really is is some sort of concession that can be extracted from the israelis and then the palestinians will pretty much accept whatever deal is offered to them yeah 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 i, I agree so I wanted to ask you about uh, Norman Finkelstein and his book, The Holocaust yeah. Industry, because I think that mm-hmm. is pretty relevant to the discussion we've been having. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what do you think about him and his book? <laughs> that is that is that is very, very, very difficult because now this is a Finkelstein, in my opinion, is a, is a, is a great uh, clusterfuck from from 10, 10 different. <laughs> I should, should talk like that, but it's not good, especially not in Ramadan. But um, yeah, it is what it is. So Finkelstein's book was written out of an aggressive anti-Zionist motivation to expose the evil doings of, of the Zionists. Now, it's also a fact that, of course, what he found or what he details is quite scandalous and often also quite well-sourced about how money has been misappropriated uh, that was meant for the victims of the Holocaust. That's the point of his book, The Holocaust Industry. He, mm-hmm. Mostly he talks about, basically he talks about uh, NGO corruption. The book is about NGO corruption. But still, it is very telling that you might see his book referenced to in post-colonial Facebook meme groups, where groups where people say, it can be proven perfectly that Israel is a white settler colony. See Finkelstein, The Holocaust Industry. Right. This book says not a single word about that. Not a single word, but it has become a kind of a metaphor for um, J- Jewish witness to anti-Zionism. Uh, do I think that this book is anti-Semitic? From what I have read, the Holocaust industry itself probably not, but Finkelstein, yes, I think. I think Norman really? Finkelstein, yeah, I think Norman Finkelstein has incorporated many elements of anti-Semitism in his thought, which might be, well, just because that's where he got his attention from. And for example, in Germany, there's this phenomena of formerly liberal Muslims who have become extremely Islamophobic now. Why? Because conservative conservative newspapers have, have a need and right-wing book readers have a need for uh, Muslim native informers who, spile, who spew diatribes against Islam much more than they have for Muslim liberals who think they want to reform Islam and they want to do it from within. Mm-hmm. I could name you several names from Germany like this. And probably it's, it's the same with, with Norman Finkelstein. 
but um i don't know i haven't i haven't um found finkelstein very sympathetic i have to admit okay interesting uh don did you have anything you wanted to to ask Holland before we wrap up no i mean we got to a lot of the things that uh i was interested in in terms of uh some of the debates and how they've evolved recently. And I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, giving us a part of your spiel on this. So, yeah, thank you. But, but, but Tom, don't you want to talk about your opinion on Finkelstein? Um, I, I don't have a strong opinion. I was just wondering because it seemed pretty relevant. I, I don't know. His, uh, takes on the Israel Palestine conflict lately seem to be highly controversial from all sides. Like, I, I don't think he draws a lot of sympathy from anybody these days. Uh, perhaps you're right that most of the, most of the people that like him do kind of come from a, like an anti-Semitic motivation or something. I personally don't really find him to be anti-Semitic in what I've seen him say. Um, but I, I can appreciate what you're saying and I understand kind of the, the perspective that you have on that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very sad that we we have no time for the listeners' question anymore. Are you sure? Can we do a few? Just just so because your listeners sure. will be sad just because <laughs> okay. I talked so long. Yeah, let's, let's do it for the listeners, sure. <laughs> um, okay, so how about this one? Is Saudi Protestantism, or on the other hand, is Protestantism Saudi? So this sounds like it may be coming from one of our Catholic listeners. I have a feeling about that. Isn't that a troll question? Oh, well, that's all we got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah, our listeners, the troll the questions we get are mostly troll ones. They're not they probably won't be oriented directly towards uh, this topic. So, um, but yeah, I mean to answer it myself, I guess uh yeah, I mean I think there are probably relationships in, you know, the people call it, you know, Wahhabi or whatever, you know, the kind of but uh and that kind of becomes a silly kind of discourse in itself, but like you know this whole uh i get what they mean about like uh the family resemblance of different types of uh um religious thought whatever i guess that's the idea but um i think that the monarchic elements in saudi uh make it a great catholic state (laughs) another hybrid post-colonial state yeah do you have any thoughts on that Holland? no not at all to be honest Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, Wahhabism or probably Wahhabism and Protestantism. Um, actually, some German Salafis uh, try to make propaganda by say, saying positive things about Martin Luther because he abolished um, all those saints. Um, but oh, that's funny. <laughs> but I, I think I think that's a forced. That I mean, it, I, it's obvious where this is going at, but the comparison is forced. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, to take it seriously, I would agree. Um, So here's one for me. It says, Tom, please come to Wales. You're the black Paul Robeson. Much love. I have no idea what that's about, but uh, sure, I'd like to go to Wales someday. Uh, P.S. Get Don to play Stellaris on PS4. It's a good port from PC, and he might get a kick out of it. Yeah, Stellaris is is good fun. That's kind of like a Civ-style sci-fi game. Yeah, you told me about it before. Mm. I've heard that it's like very sci-fi too. Like it's got like a lot of like it goes strange places. Apparently, I guess I don't know. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely kind of borrows from like everything in the genre to kind of. It, so it's just like a big mishmash of every sci-fi convention, pretty much. Sure. Okay, 
I kind of like this comment. Donald Hughes is a man with a gigantic intellect, an extremely humane sense of individuality, a brilliant sense of humor, and beautiful sensibility. So that's nice. Baby oh, Finland. That's it? Yeah. No, no, there's more. Oh, no. There's, okay. there's certainly, certainly one who listens to your podcast more than he reads your Twitter profile. <laughs> well, here's the second part of the comment. Baby Finland slash Muslim Tom is just an asshole. So, yeah, that, that's about right, I guess. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, it's, it's saying exactly what both of us want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Um, okay, Colin, you may be able to help me with this one. <clears throat> hey, Muslim Tom, do you have any recommendations of lectures and or documentaries on the history of Islam on YouTube? On YouTube? The sad yeah. thing is that I hate listening to videos because I read faster than people speak usually. And it feels like I'm wasting time when I'm listening to lectures. It's a bit strange. strange no, thing I, I know what you mean. I, I generally tend to listen to things uh, either if I'm like eating, you know, I'll put something on. Or if I'm like playing a game or something, I'll put it on in the background to listen to while I play. Um, Everything from Abdul Hakim Murad. He's always great. I've recommended him uh, several times, but yeah, I would definitely go for that. Uh, there's a, I th I've mentioned this before, but um, Hamza Yusuf did a lecture series on the Sira, on the bi the biography of the mm -hmm, prophet, and mm -hmm. uh, that goes through Martin Ling's book, and that's very good. Um, someone who comes to mind who's very interesting, but it may it's not a good like starting point, I would say is i think his name is Khalid blankenship uh he's done some interesting scholarship on the early not like the very early days of islam but kind of the the kingdoms and whatnot that came afterwards and uh they're very interesting he, he gets into like coinage and things like that uh so that's kind of like a a different take that i think is pretty interesting i haven't read his book but it's called the end of the jihad state or something and i think the argument is basically that the early muslim expansion relied on jihad and then it kind of ran out of gas at a certain point something along those lines uh he's an interesting guy um okay muslim tom have you have you watched anwar al-awlaki's pre-aq speeches if so what do you think of them I have uh, I've listened to some of them. I I haven't watched anything, uh, but yeah, I've listened to some of them, and they were pretty you know pretty standard. You you wouldn't think that he was anything crazy from uh, from those early lectures. What, what do you think, Holland? Do you have any opinion on that? No, no, just no. Okay, yeah, I I, I mean I it's it's very weird uh how these things kind of turn out you know people have these kind of strange breaks and they kind of go off in different directions i just uh, know that people say that before 9 11 he was cool and i have no idea what that even means i just know that people say this you know <laughs> right and yeah. i know that afterwards he said some very despicable things that's all yeah i mean i i, I actually like i haven't done like a close reading on and to figure out like is it true that he, i don't know maybe his content that he was putting out about you know very standard topics maybe they weren't even that different but it was like these candid comments that he was making in his like political activities 
uh, outside of that that changed. Maybe his actual, you know, lectures on the names of God or something were never really that crazy, even after 9-11 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay. How can I know God more and feel closer to him on a daily basis? We'll, we'll finish with this one. I think this is a nice, we can take this one seriously. Um, I can start. Uh, so I would say uh, prayer probably it sounds weird but I, you know i mean it sounds i mean it'll sound weird to people who are not religious that are listening but like uh yeah i mean it's very very straightforward i don't know and uh yeah i mean i find it the the easiest thing to me is just uh um trying to be patient with myself and goal oriented in some ways you know like i try to get certain things done and for some reason to me that's like respectful or something like it's like mm -hmm. a it's like a nice way of approaching things like it's you know it's almost like i have to you know i i can be good to myself and that is almost like prayer in its own way kind of thing you know yeah know. that makes sense it's like i don't know so yeah yeah the the prophet said that your body has a right uh over you so that kind of reminds me of that uh so i would answer this question by saying i i agree with prayer i think that's very good uh especially if if the person asking is is Muslim. I think that the Salah is very good for that. I think spending time in nature is also uh, a really beneficial thing in this regard. Like you, if you're cooped up in your house in the office all day, like a lot of us are, you know, the quarantine stuff going on, um, that's a, that's not a very conducive environment for getting in touch with God. I think, uh, the natural environment is much better for that. And, um, yeah, I think just taking it slow and gradual and not not like waiting for some kind of like lightning bolt out of the sky to strike you. I think that's I wouldn't really bet on that. I think uh, God appreciates persistence and consistent effort and that kind of thing. And I, I think you'll it develops over time. It's, it's one of those kind of things. You have any uh, comments on that one, Khalid? I would agree with everything you said and every, yeah, it was wonderfully put. I agree, really, that was put very well. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, okay, so I think we'll end it there. Uh, this has been a really interesting talk. I really appreciated having you on, Khaled, especially given that it's like the wee hours of the morning and you're probably exhausted and dry mouth by, <laughs> by now. It was, a, it was a pleasure for me. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I, I'd like to have you on again sometime. And we can uh, continue the, this uh, line of debate. Inshallah. Inshallah. Okay, so thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like to hear a second episode of the podcast every week, you can subscribe to our Patreon, and you'll get access to that, as well as access to our Discord. And, uh, yeah, well, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll catch you again next week.
from camps arising See the helpless creatures on their way Hey old pal Ain't it surprising How far you can go before you stay Don't you Spoken just swings a rope and rides inside a song. Dead limbs play with ringless fingers. A melody which burns you deep inside. Oh, how. Becomes the singers May peace be ever with you as you ride How long will you be driven Relentless round the world The blood and the rhythm of the soul Mind you that today you are a child The road ahead Forever rolling And anything worth crying can be smiled So right Right up Boy, ride them all around the old corral. I'm, I'm with you, boy. If I got to ride six million miles. 